0: All right, as you reach for your Bibles, if you all would also stand with me this morning, we're going to read uh, Ruth chapter 2, verses 18 through 23 this morning, Pastor Bruce's message titled, What the Whole World Needs. Again, we're in Ruth chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, if you have a pew Bible, page 155. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, "'Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? "'Blessed be the one who took notice of you.' So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, "'The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz.' Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, "'Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead.' And Naomi said to her, "'This man is a relation of ours.' one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. God, again this morning, we just ask that your word... speak to our hearts lord that through your spirit lord uh, we would understand and apply all the uh, all the truth that you have in your word uh, to teach us this morning god we just thank you for all you've given us in christ's name amen
1: a couple of weeks ago chris and i we we had the opportunity to go to a pastor's conference in uh, boston massachusetts how many have been to boston before Oh, actually, quite a few of you. Man, one of the greatest cities I've ever visited. It was my first time to visit Boston, and uh, I was just so impressed with the city of Boston and even the suburbs and and just a beautiful, beautiful place. And, uh, and, and anyways, Chris and I, we had an afternoon free, and so we decided to take some tours. Now, you know, if most of you are probably familiar that Boston is a very historical uh, city, a lot of historical places. So of all the places historically, that we could go to, where do you think we go to take a tour? Fenway Park, man. We choose of all places. We're sports fans. We want to go tour Fenway Park. So we take an afternoon. We hop on the train, and, uh, and we go into downtown, and uh, we get off the train, and we walk to Fenway Park. And I have to admit, as I'm walking up the road to Fenway Park, and it comes into view, I'm just like, wow. I, this is amazing. I already knew I'm going to be in for a treat. Chris is going to be in for a treat. We both are. And we're kind of already just drooling over this idea of, of touring Fenway Park. And so we buy our, our tour passes. And uh, we were a few minutes early. So they then have you kind of wait in their, uh, their, uh, their, 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 where you buy the fan gear. Now, if you go to Royal Stadium, it's kind of like, a well, maybe they've enlarged it, but it used to be like 12 by 12. It's a real small place. Let me tell you, Fenway Park's fan gear place, it's huge. It's, it's, like a, it's like a big store. It's mammoth. And they have everything you can imagine that's related to fan gear at this place. So anyways, we wait there, and then our tour starts. And uh, this guy, this uh, senior guy, he starts cracking some jokes. And he's just the funniest guy talking in that Boston accent. And, uh, and then we get our tour guide, who was a young fellow, probably in his 20s. And uh and so he begins to take our group up and we begin to tour and he we get it to the press box and he we get to sit down where all the press box uh people are sit and you're you're just this looking out over this stadium that's just old. I mean old. And he begins to tell us the history of the Boston Red Sox in Fenway Park. And let me tell you, he is passionate about it. And he is excited about it. And he is I mean he's just going on and on about everything about Fenway Park. And as some of you don't know, uh, the Boston Red Sox were founded in 1901. And then they, they joined the, uh, the, the baseball league. And they, and in the early years, they won, I think like, f- was it four or five, uh, World Series? In fact, they won the very first World Series against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And he's telling us about this. And, uh, and then he's, he goes on to tell us all about the, the curse. The Bambino curse when they sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. And they attribute that curse to their 86-year-long drought. Can you imagine going 86 years without a championship? And for them, that was just like they can't believe this because we're the best team in the world and we have gone 86 years. And let me tell you, they're so, I mean, he's just going on and on about this. And you dare not mention the word Yankees because they hate Yankee Nation, because they're Boston Red Sox Nation up there. And he's just, I mean, he, you would think these guys, it, it's a matter of life and death for them. And then lo and behold, he gets to the part where, as you know your baseball history, in 2004, they broke the curse. And they won the World Series. And they went bazonkers and you name it. And then, of course, they won another one here uh, not too long ago. But what was funny, what was really funny about it is... Uh, We were there the day uh, before their their last playoff game, and they were tied 2-2. And so it was a do-or-die game. And so, you know, we fly out the day after that game that they lost. You would have thought somebody died in the city of Boston. Chris and I get on the plane to fly out, and, of course, all these Bostonians are on the plane. And it was just, I mean, it was like we were at a funeral. I mean, they take it as a matter of life and death. And that somebody died because their beloved Red Sox had lost. Now, in a real way, you know, they think they were dealing with a matter of life and death. As we continue in our book of Ruth, Ruth and Naomi actually did deal with death. And they are devastated by it. If you remember, just to catch you up a little bit, uh, Naomi has lost her husband, Elimelech. She's lost her two sons. Ruth has lost her husband now. And so they, they have every reason to be disappointed. They have, are grieving. They're devastated. But God's grace has also been at work. And we have seen that in chapter 2 as well. God's grace was at work in the worst of times in their lives. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 2, Ruth and Naomi, they have hit rock bottom in their life. But by the end of chapter 2, they have found grace at the bottom of the barrel. Why? Because of the grace of God at work. God was working in their life. God's grace was working. And so now Ruth and Naomi are truly moving in life, moving from emptiness to fullness. They're moving from sorrow to joy, from bitterness to blessedness. In fact, it... All of this illustrates the theme of the book of Ruth that we looked at in the first few messages here. And that is, if you want to find hope in a disappointing world, then turn to God. And that's what Ruth and Naomi have begun to do. Now, with all this in mind, I want us to stop and ask a question. And the question is this. What do you think is the world's greatest need? And as you ponder that, The world's greatest need. I'm sure all kinds of answers can come to your mind. The world's greatest needs. uh, Wars, injustice, greed, natural disasters, economic uncertainty, poverty, and fear are just a few of the issues that our world is facing in the 21st century. But are these the greatest needs of our world today? These are certainly important issues. They grab the heart of God because they impact so many people. The world's answers to these great needs is to craft solutions by strengthening governments or increasing humanitarian aid and intensifying environmental protection or building stronger communities. But while the world is treating the symptoms, the root of the problem remains untreated. Why? Because what the world desperately needs is a kinsman redeemer to rescue us from our sin. What the world desperately needs is a kinsman redeemer to rescue us from our sin. Now the Bible clearly identifies this this great need that we have in our world today. And you can go to several verses, but I think Romans chapter 3 verse 23 sums it up well when it states simply, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words... What the Apostle Paul is telling us in this one verse in the book of Romans, that the world's great need is not just political. It's not just economical. It's not just social. It's spiritual in nature. And this spiritual need affects the whole world. It affects all of humanity. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. What the world needs, get this, God provides. What the world needs, God provides. The next verse in Romans 3.24 says, We are justified by His grace through the what? Redemption that came by Jesus Christ. You can go over to Ephesians chapter 1 and it says the same thing this way, in him, in who? In Christ Jesus, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, what I want us to do today is I want us to look and see how God's provision to the world's great need applies first of all to Ruth in this story of the book of Ruth that we've been looking at. And then I want us to see how God's provision to the world's great need applies to us here today, for those of us who are living now in the 21st century. So we're going to look at two things, how God's provision to the need first of all applies to Ruth, and then how it applies to you and I. So let's look at it first for Ruth. What the world needs, God provides. Number one, Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Now, we'll look at this uh, in the actual story of the book of Ruth uh, when we come back in November because we're going to take a three-week break for our missions emphasis here, as you see with all these flags and posters up. So we'll come back to first Sunday in November, and we'll look at this, how this played out exactly uh, for Ruth and Boaz. But I want to give us an overview right now on the concept of Boaz as Ruth's kinsman, redeemer. Now, when Ruth went with Naomi back to Bethlehem, you may remember that they were were starving to death, basically. They had no food. And so food, though, was was, was only one of the things that Ruth lacked in her life. She had not just turned away from her family and her false gods to follow the one true God. In doing so, she had also given up, by all human appearances, the prospect of a marriage, or remarriage, the prospect of having a home of her own. And even though she now had food, because then when they returned to Bethlehem, it was the beginning of barley harvest, and so food was plentiful. And so although she now had food through the gracious generosity generosity of Boaz, what Ruth still needed, though, was a husband to rescue her from her widowhood. So what Ruth still needed was a husband to rescue her. This need is emphasized for us by the closing statement in the very last sentence of Ruth chapter 2. Notice it in your Bibles. If you go to Ruth 2, verse 23, it says simply this. And it's so easy to miss. It's so easy just to kind of gloss over and pass by. But it says, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Now, if you're dwelling with a mother-in-law, what's the inference there? That you're a widow, especially in this day and age. But why state the obvious? Why would the author of the book of Ruth state what is so obvious to us as we've been reading through the book of Ruth? Well, because that simple remark highlights the fact that there was one need that still remained in Ruth's life. By emphasizing the fact that Ruth wasn't living with a husband, the author is, in essence, he's preparing us. He's getting us ready for what's going to happen next in the story, as we will see in Ruth chapter 3 in the month of November. And so by uh, making this one statement here, Ruth is still a widow. She still needs a husband. She's still dwelling with her mother-in-law. And so it ties together, Ruth Chapter 1 and 2 with Ruth chapter 3 and 4. And he's setting us up. He's getting us ready. He wants us to anticipate this marriage between Ruth and Boaz. And Boaz comes to rescue her from her widowhood. Now, what though is a kinsman redeemer? Because Boaz is going to become just that in Ruth's life. A kinsman redeemer. But what in the world is that? Well... Naomi first used this term with reference to Boaz after Ruth returned from gleaning in the fields in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. Look at it again. I want to read it out of NIV. It says, the Lord bless him, speaking of Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen, Redeemer. So there we have the term being used by Naomi. And later, Ruth used the same term when she and Boaz met on the threshing floor in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 9. If you want to go to your Bibles there and look at it. Verse 9 of chapter 3. And again, reading out of of the NIV, it says, Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman of... Redeemer. So we have this terminology being used in the book of Ruth that we need to understand because it plays a very significant part for Ruth, but also for us even today. So what is the role of a kinsman redeemer? What is a kinsman redeemer? Well, notice this in your notes. The Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer is goel. Goel. G-O-E-L. Goel. Goel. And that word simply means to buy back or to redeem. And this role of the goel or the role of the kinsman redeemer was fulfilled by a close relative or a near relative for the purpose of protecting the family and, and specifically the family name and the family property. Now, but we need to even back up a little further in explanation of the kinsman-redeemer, and why there was even a kinsman-redeemer concept to begin with in the Old Testament. This role of the kinsman-redeemer is predicated on one key truth that you find throughout the Old Testament, and that is that the land, the promised land, always belongs to God, simply because He owns it. Let me explain. As the rightful owner, the land that God gave to the Israelites, in reference to the promised land, it was a gift. It was, You could say it was a trust. And as a gift or a trust, the land that God was giving to the Israelites as his chosen people was not to be used only for their personal advancement and kingdom building, if you will. Their personal kingdoms. It was not to be used just for them and them only for selfish reasons. Why? Because God owned the land. Indeed, God would bless Israel's working of the land for the provision of their needs. In fact, God told them, listen, if you will follow me, if you will love me with all your heart, and if you will follow me with all your heart, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. And then God told them, but if you don't, if you stray from me, if you don't follow me, if you serve other gods, then I will not bless you. And so the land, God had given them as a gift. But that land was not to be used just for them personally, not for their own advancement. It was not to consume their attention. It was not to consume their uh, focus in life. Now, why is that? Because, as I already said, they are the people of God. But, folks, they're not just the people of God. Uh, There's more to it. They are the people of God in the sense that they have been redeemed by God. And what were they redeemed out of? Where were they residing before God gave them the promised land? God redeemed them out of the bondage of Egypt. And so now they were to live as a witness to God's grace of redeeming them out of the bondage of Egypt, of saving them and bringing them out of slavery and giving them this land, the promised land to them, that flowed with milk and honey. They were to live for God in His glory. So other nations would now know who the one true God is, that God is the true God, not these false gods of of Moab that Ruth was familiar with, but that she would become familiar with the one true living God, Jehovah. And so for this reason, the land was to be the stage for ministry to one another within the Israelite community, as well as an opportunity to meet the needs of those outside of the Israelite community, those outside the family of God, thereby making the promised land their stage. For missions to the nations. And so the land was everything for the people of God at this point in time. As you can imagine, a family share then in the promised land. Let's pretend you're all part of the nation of Israel. Each family would now own a piece of land. You would have a stake in the promised land. Through the tribes of Israel, you were given ownership. And while I say ownership, it was really on loan. It was a trust. It was a gift. God was the ultimate owner. And so your little piece of the pie, if you will, the promised land, you were given. And let me tell you, that was everything for you, especially in agricultural age, because you harvest your crops, you lived off of it, but it was not just for you only. You were not to be selfish about it. You were to use God's blessing on your land to meet the needs of one another, but also those outside as a testimony to the nations, to those who don't know the one true God. And so the families show the promised land played a significant part in Israel's history, as well as God's redemptive plan for humanity. But life in a sinful world holds no promises and holds no guarantees. So God, in order to protect each person's property, instituted laws to protect private property from forced or permanent loss. For example, as an Israelite got themselves in a situation where they couldn't uh, meet his financial obligations, he more than likely would have to sell some or all of his property and even hire himself out to work for someone else. But God's law said by selling his land, a poor man did not cease to be the rightful owner of the property. The law forbade... The permanent sell of one's land and transfer of ownership. You say, well, how's that? What law are you referring to? It's called the Law of Jubilee. Anybody heard of it? The Law of Jubilee. It was an awesome law in the Israelite nation. Because the Law of Jubilee stated that every 50 years, all your debts were canceled. Woo! Right? You'd be a happy Israelite. Not only that, but all your property was returned to you. And you now became the rightful owner. And this was, in a sense, God's way of kind of wiping the slate clean and giving everyone a fresh start every 50 years. But during the intervening 49 years, the best option then for recovering your land, your piece of the land, was through a what? A kinsman redeemer. Now, this now ties us back to the story of Ruth and Boaz. This is where Boaz comes into play. Because Boaz, now out of this big concept of of the land and the importance of it, and kinsman redeemer, comes in, laser-like, and becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And he does that in two ways, in two situations specifically, based on two Jewish laws. Notice this in your notes. First of all, through the redemption of property. Ruth Boaz does this through the redemption of property. And this law basically said that a kinsman redeemer would reclaim a field that had been sold in time of financial distress. In fact, there was also even uh, what was considered a redemption of persons, If you got yourself in such a financial position where you had to sell yourself out as a servant or into slavery, and so you had redemption of persons and redemption of property. For Boaz, in Ruth's context, it was redemption of property here. This law is found in Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 28. Let me read it to you. You can turn to it in your Bibles if you want to follow along. But here's what it says. The land must not be sold permanently. This is God saying. Why? Because the land is mine, God says. And you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. And then God gives an example. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. If, however, a man has no one to redeem it for him, but he himself propers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it, he is to determine the value for the year since he sold it and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. He can then go back to his own property. But if he does not acquire the means to repay him and what he sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee, and he can then go back to his property, back to his land, which was everything for the Israelites. And so this is how Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer for for Ruth. Number two, the second way is then redemption of name. The redemption of a, a family name, where a kinsman redeemer would marry a relative's widow to care for her and have a child. Basically, God set up a law where under certain circumstances the kinsman redeemer uh, could marry the widow and raise up a child for the brother or even another relative who had died childless in order to continue the family name. This strange law is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10. I won't take the time to to read it, but on your own you can go there and, and see this law. So we have have these two instances, situations, and again, we'll look at them in detail when we come back in November. Now, obviously, there were plenty of loopholes that Boaz could have slipped through and absolved himself of any legal responsibility when it came to marrying Ruth, had he so wished. But Boaz, remember, as we looked at last week, he's not concerned with just fulfilling the law. He's not concerned with just obligation of the law. He had a heart that had been touched by God's grace. Therefore, it overflowed with grace to those around him. This is why Naomi rejoices when when Boaz is the man who helped Ruth because he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And so when Ruth comes back home and and she comes back with this, ephah, a flower, a a barley. And Ruth, Naomi, sees how much it is. And she's like, man, where did you get all this? Where did you work? And and Ruth is like, well, I worked in this field and, and it was Boaz. And she's like, whoa, Boaz. Ruth, do you know who he is? He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And the bells start going off in Naomi's mind now. There's hope. We can be rescued out of our situation in life. And as we shall see, Boaz does just that. He came to the defense of Ruth and Naomi. Why? In order to protect their family and preserve their inheritance. But folks, listen to me. Getting involved as a kinsman redeemer was no small thing. It would cost you dearly. To become one. And to fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer. And it was going to cost Boaz dearly. Even so, showing grace trumped all personal sacrifice. Why? Because Boaz had experienced God's redeeming grace in his own life. He knew God had rescued him from his sin. And given him a share of the promised land. And so now Boaz is saying to himself, I can do no less. I've been touched by God's grace. I've experienced God's grace. And so now I'm going to be a channel of God's grace. And whatever the sacrifice is, that's what I will pay to fulfill my role as Ruth's kinsman redeemer. But here's what's really amazing. Step away from this for just one moment. Because here's what's really cool. The redemption of property and name by Boaz and Ruth's life You know what it's doing for us? It's it's pointing us forward. It's pointing us ahead to something much greater that's about to come. This is a picture that simply foreshadows what God is going to do, and that is namely the redemption from sin that is accomplished by His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, what Naomi and Ruth needed most was not simply a redeemer to rescue them from their earthly poverty, nor even a husband to rescue Ruth from her widowhood. Rather, what they both needed most in life was a heavenly redeemer to rescue them from their sin. And so what the world needs most, God provides. God does that through Boaz for Ruth as a kinsman redeemer. And just as Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer, Jesus, our second point here, is our kinsman redeemer. Now, again, we all need a redeemer. Some of us realize it, some of us don't. Why? Because the Bible teaches that our greatest problem is what? Sin. I'm born that way. I'm born selfish and sinful. That's my identity when I'm born. I'm a sinner, God calls me. That's my spiritual identity when I'm born. That's why I need to be redeemed, born again, so that I can change my identity from being a sinner to a son of God or a child of God. You see, we are in the bondage to our sin. And because of that, we are separated from God. And we desperately need a Redeemer to rescue us from our sin. But folks, listen to me. It won't be your parents' It won't be your spouse. It won't be your friends. Jesus Christ is the only one qualified to be our redeemer. Let me show you why real quickly here. Why Jesus fulfills the role of our kinsman and redeemer. Number one, Jesus is my nearest kin through his incarnation. He's my close relative through his incarnation. Now, hang on to that word. I know that's a big word. Some of you may not be familiar with the word incarnation, But basically, in order to qualify as a kinsman redeemer, a man had to be a close relative or kin. This is why God sent his son Jesus to take on human flesh when he was born. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It'll be here before you know it. Jesus was the perfect God-man. And as a man... He qualifies as our human relative. And as God, He qualifies as the sinless, perfect Redeemer. The Bible describes the incarnation of Jesus this way in John chapter 1, verse 14, when it says, "...the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth." And it's the idea that Jesus left heaven and came to earth and dwelt among us. He just he pitched his tent and lived among us as the perfect God-man. The incarnation, I'll admit, it's a mystery beyond my understanding at times. Who can fully understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ? And yet, because of his incarnation, Jesus fulfills the role of our kinsman-redeemer. Number two, only Jesus has the means to redeem me. You see, a kinsman redeemer had to have the the wherewithal, the means, or the power to be a redeemer. In other words, he had to have the bucks. He had to have the money to buy back the property or even buy back the person from slavery. And Jesus qualifies because he has plenty of riches to purchase people like us who find ourselves in sin. Aren't you glad there's no recession in heaven? No economic chaos in heaven? The psalm says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, one of my all-time favorite verses. This verse is so simple and yet so powerful. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, who was rich? Jesus, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Rich. This verse explains God's grace in action. The grace is the favor that Jesus showed to us when he was willing to take all the immeasurable riches he possesses in heaven and spend it on our redemption. How many of you like a, uh, you love a good story, but not just, you like a, a rags to riches story. You know, they sometimes, you know, write books about it, make movies about it, rags to riches And as I was thinking about this concept, I couldn't help but think about Steve Jobs, who this last week passed away, died. Steve Jobs, if you're not familiar with him, you're familiar with the products that he invented. If you have an iPhone or an iMac, iPod, iShuffle, then you know Steve Jobs indirectly. Steve Jobs was the founder of Apple. Died at the age of 56 from pancreatic cancer this last week. Steve Jobs is interesting. When he was growing up, he, wasn't growing up all the, he didn't grow up all that wealthy. In fact, there was a time when he was in college that he lived on, it just. he was truly a rags to riches story. In fact, he was adopted by his parents, never had any relationship with his biological father whatsoever. But he truly made it rich, didn't he? I mean, talk about a guy, rag to riches story, and yet he passes away at the age of 56, and my thought is, he died wealthy, but he, did he die redeemed by Jesus Christ? Because in the end, that's all that matters. That is all that matters. Did he die a redeemed man by Jesus Christ because he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ? I don't know. The story of salvation from Jesus' perspective is Riches to rags to riches. Because Jesus emptied himself in his heavenly bank account in order to purchase our redemption. In the process, he became poor so that we might become rich spiritually and eternally in him. So don't look to the government to redeem you. It doesn't have the power. Don't look for your job to redeem you. It doesn't have the means to do so. Don't look to your family or friends to redeem you. They don't have the power either. Only Jesus has the means necessary to purchase your salvation. Number three, only Jesus is willing to do so. Willing to redeem me. You see, a man could be a relative. He could even have plenty of moolah. But the third requirement was that he had to be willing to be a kinsman redeemer. He could be a very wealthy relative, but he could still refuse to fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer. Jesus qualifies because he was willing. He voluntarily died for you and I. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says this about Jesus. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the willingness of Jesus. And you're like, man, why would anybody do that for me? Why would Jesus be willing to die for me so that he could redeem me? Because you are created in the image of God for the glory of God. And he loves you dearly as his creation. Listen, God doesn't want you to waste your life on the stuff of this world that won't make a difference when it's all said and done. If Steve Jobs is in hell at this moment... You think he cares about his inventions of an iMac, iPad, iPhone? No. God redeems us because he loves you. He doesn't want you wasting our lives on the things that don't matter. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have an iPad and iMac. Listen, I got an iMac in my office. It's just to sit and consume us, it's not the passion of my life. God wants to save your life from sin's eternal destruction. He wants to give you a life of purpose and satisfaction. But that kind of life only comes through our redemption from sin. That's why Jesus loves you and is willing to redeem you. But there had to be a price paid. Which brings us to number four. Only Jesus has paid the full price to redeem me. The fourth requirement was you had to pay the full price to buy back the person or the property. And the price of our redemption was too high for anyone else to pay. But at the cross, Jesus paid the full price to redeem us from the law and our sin and from death. First Peter 1, 18-19 tells us the price that Jesus paid for our redemption when it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, Handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the what? Precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Here's the bottom line Jesus is the only one who qualifies to be our kinsman redeemer. Jesus took on human flesh so he could live among us, he took those human hands. And when he lived here, he touched the blind, he touched the the brokenhearted, and he used those hands to break the bread and even feed thousands of people. But the main reason Jesus needed a human body was to die for us on the cross. Why? Because Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so Jesus willingly died in our place and allowed his human hands to be nailed to the cross. And now Jesus extends those nail-pierced hands to you and me and says, Listen, if you'll come, if you'll come to me through faith, I'll be your Redeemer. I'll rescue you from your sin, and I'll give you a new life in me. Now, if kinsmen redeemers came to the defense of family members, then God has certainly come to the defense of us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And what He has done in doing so, He has secured our deliverance from sin, and He has obtained our inheritance in heaven. Folks, you know what this means? When we now put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we receive by faith the redemption that He accomplished, that means you have a part in the family of God. That means, as we saw last Sunday, you have a place at the Lord's table. Whoa! Why? Because you're no longer seen as a sinner. You are now seen from God's perspective through Christ's righteousness as a son and daughter in God's family. This means you have an inheritance reserved in heaven. An inheritance. Some of us don't even know we have inheritance. Like, I didn't know my parents are poor. They ain't leaving me anything behind, we think. I know my dad isn't. He says, I'm spending it all before you get a dime, Bruce. I tell dad, I don't care what you spend, Dad, because I got one in heaven. I have an inheritance in heaven, right? Did you know you have an inheritance in heaven? You know what this means? It doesn't matter what our economy's doing right now. It doesn't matter what your 40K and retirement plan is doing, whatever little savings you may have. It means... No more threats to our inheritance. It means we have a future and a hope that is secure. So now, with that kind of security of an inheritance set aside for us, with our place at the family table, with our place in the family of God, you know what that means we can do now? We can fulfill God's missional purpose in our lives. We can fulfill this greater purpose that goes beyond just my little world but extends to the whole world. You see, there was a missional purpose of the kinsman-redeemer concept in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Look at it with me in your notes here. In the Old Testament, the promised land was the stage For God's people to proclaim the fame of God's name to all peoples around the world. They did this from the promised land to throughout. This is why God redeemed his people from the bondage of Egypt and gave them the promised land as an inheritance. So they would now proclaim the fame of God's name to the nations. You see, the Promised Land was the stage on which Israel lived out its relationship with God in relation to each other and to those outside their family. And as they lived out, listen to me, as they lived as a peculiar people, as a people set apart unto God, redeemed by God, they would proclaim the fame of His name And that fame is, God is our Redeemer. Look what He's done for us. In many ways, God's missional purpose of redemption, though, was centralized to God's land, to the promised land. But now, God's missional purpose of redemption is decentralized from God's land to God's church. Which brings us to this next line here. Notice it. So what does this mean for us today? It simply means that today, the church is the stage for God's people to proclaim the fame of God's name to all peoples around the world. Listen, God, who wants a people for his name, has done everything necessary to redeem such a people through his son, Jesus Christ. And so now, we, who are a part of God's church... Because we put our faith in Christ, Christ, we bear witness to God's redeeming grace. How? By proclaiming the fame of his name. We do this verbally, and we do it through deeds. We do it with our whole life. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel is all about the triumph of Jesus over sin and death and judgment and Satan as our Redeemer and the aim of proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom is that the nations might know the fame of God. That they might know who His Son is and what He has done for the world through Jesus Christ. God declares this or purpose in Isaiah 12, verse 4, when He says, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is, is exalted you know what the heart cry of our church needs to be it's the heart cry that every it needs to be the heart cry of every church you can go to the psalms in psalm 67 verses 1 through 4 where it says god be merciful to me to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us why so that your way may be known on earth your salvation among the nations let the peoples praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Listen, that's the heart cry of the church. To proclaim the fame of his name so that all the nations know who he is and what he has done for us. Now I hope you're seeing how this ties in to what our church is all about. And why we have a a missions week, a missions conference, a world outreach celebration. Why we partner with missionaries so that we can send them to proclaim the fame of God's name. And so let me bring this down to a a real life application of of, uh, as we leave here now. Of how we can put this into practice immediately in our lives. Let me leave you with three ways to promote the fame of God's name through the church. Number one is to attend the World Outreach Celebration. It's just come, be a part of it. Uh, We have an outreach celebration every year. It's in October, and it's coming up here in a week and a half on October the 19th through the 23rd. And In my opinion, one of the greatest benefits of attending the World Outreach Celebration is that we get to meet real-life missionaries. We get to hear their passion and their vision for the country and the people groups that God has called them to. Look at the posters here. You can already get a little bit of an introduction of who they are. They're all young families. They're all on deputation raising support. But one of the other benefits is when you come to a world outreach celebration is you'll be challenged and hopefully even convicted about your own personal involvement. In God's missional purpose of proclaiming the fame of his name. Now, I'll be honest with you. The World Outreach Celebration is on, is on, it starts on Wednesday night, it's Thursday night, and it's Friday night. And I'm telling you now, you have to make it a priority or you won't come. Right? Because we all live busy lives. We work during the day, most of us. We come home, we're tired, and the easiest thing in the world is... I want to go, but I sit in my chair, I turn on the TV, and I don't have enough time to eat. I'm eating right now. Oh, I don't want to get back out. Oh, man, I want to go, but I don't really want to go. Right? We all, that's where we live. And so you have to personally make it a priority to come those three nights at 7 o'clock. Uh, it goes from 7 to about 9 o'clock. In fact, it really gets over at 8.30 because we have a fellowship time from 8.30 to 9. And if you've got young kids and you need to get and get them into bed, then do that. Man, go. But come and be a part. Bring your kids. Don't, listen, as well, we have a kids celebration just for them. Bring your teens. The teens get to be a part of this. It's for all age groups. And so you got, I'm telling you now, you will have to make it a priority. You will have to realign your schedule. And set everything aside for those three days. If you don't, chances are you come and you won't. We believe in this enough. We believe it's important. Why? Because it's about God's missional purpose and how our church can be involved in it. It's crucially important. Like Boaz. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, which brings us to number two. Serve at the World Outreach Celebration. This is another way to get involved in the fame of God's name. Serve at the World Outreach Celebration and the trunk or tree. And, you know, to a large degree, the success of our World Outreach Celebration depends on all of us doing our part to serve. So, you know, as soon as our last song is sung, let me encourage you to go back to the back table, sign up. Plenty of opportunity to sign up. And so far, you guys have done really good signing up for the dessert fellowships. Where we need help, I'll be honest with you. Is watching the little rugrats, the little babies and toddlers. We need nursery help and we need kids celebration help. All right, so plenty of opportunities. And listen, we're not uh, uh, we're not age restricted on on who can help out on those things. So please sign up on the back table. And then one other way you can get involved in God's missional purpose is by us as a church going locally and serving in our trunk or treat. Listen. God used Boaz as a channel of grace to Ruth. And we want to be used as a church as a channel of grace to our community. In the same way. We put on this free event for them. And you know, what? we've done this now for five or six years. And the feedback we're getting from the community is, man, we can't believe you guys do this. And the food is free. They're amazed by it. They're like, thank you so much. This is a great blessing to us. They don't use the word blessing, but, you know, thanks. We really appreciate you guys doing this for us. And we pass out tracts there. We pass out literature about our church, and we just make ourselves known that, hey, we really are a church down the road that has an interest and cares about you. We have received the blessing of God. We want to share it with you as well in sponsoring this free community event. So be a part of it. There's a sign up to to decorate your your card there. And then number three, a third way to get involved is to give. To give financially, to send missionaries to all peoples around the world. Now, listen, God may not lead everyone to go and proclaim his name, but all of us can give to send others. And that's what our faith promise giving is all about. Um, for those of you that are fairly new to our church, every World Outreach Celebration is when we have a card, it's called Faith Promise Giving, and it's simply the way we give for our missionaries and support them so that they can be sent to go. And what I'm asking you to do as a church family is to begin praying, God, what is it you want me to give? How much? You have got to make it a matter of prayer. Talk to your spouse about it. If you're single, talk to yourself about it. God, how much do you want me to participate? How much do you want me to give? And whether it's a dollar a week, five dollars a week, so be it. I'm not so much concerned about the amount you give as God leads you. But please, I'm asking you make it a matter of prayer. And, and to participate. One of our goals when it comes to our faith promise giving, and we'll, and we'll hand out the cards on October the uh, 23rd, and you can either turn them in there or Sundays after that, and one of our goals is, is really 100% participation because when everybody participates, we can do so much more. And if you'll notice on all these missionaries, you know where every one of them is in their process as a missionary? They're all on deputation. They're all trying to raise money so they can get to their field. And the only way we can take on some of these missionaries is if our faith promise giving increases. Listen, they're going out church to church trying to raise their money. They're young, they have passion, they have excitement. I'm telling you, it's going to be a great time, but wouldn't it be awesome if our faith promise commitments come up somewhere we could take on one or two or whatever the case may be on some of these families. But it's only going to happen as each of us participates, whether that's giving a dollar a week, five dollars a week, or some of you who God has really blessed even giving fifty dollars a week, whatever the case may be. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, we thank you for the kinsman redeemer that we have in Jesus Christ, the one who has rescued us from our sin. And Lord, we look forward to the time when we can... As a church family, put that into practice as far as taking this concept of Jesus Christ as Redeemer to the world. And so, Lord, move us as a church. Help us to begin thinking about it, praying about this idea of how we can be involved in sending these missionaries out locally and globally for the fame of God's name. Lord, work in our hearts. May we clear away our schedules, make it a priority to come and participate. May we have a heart of, of service and to get involved and, and to serve at the World Outreach and also the Trunk tree as well. We ask these things in your name. Amen.